Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. If you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these pages on page, on uh, these verses on page 948. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. This fall, we are focusing on the mission of the church. Only we are not focusing on the mission of the church as we normally do. We, we aren't focusing on the mission of the church when it is gathered together as the church for a, a service of worship such as this, or for a, a small group meeting, or for a, a Sunday school class. But rather, we are focusing on the mission of the church when it is scattered, when its members are out and about in the community. As you often hear us say, the mission of the church when it is gathered, that, that mission given to it by God, is to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the mission given to us by Jesus himself when he tells his apostles to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. However, there is another way to think about the mission of the church. If the church's mission is to make disciples when it is gathered together, then this strongly suggests that the mission of the church when it is scattered, scattered is to be disciples, to, to live as becomes followers of Christ. And it is this call to live as disciples, this, this call to live as becomes the followers of Christ that is our focus this fall. And so to this point, we have seen that the defining mark of a disciple, that which distinguishes a, a non-disciple from a disciple, is repentance and faith. It is that response of repentance and faith to the proclamation of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and, and what He has done that, that makes us disciples. It is through that response that we become disciples of Jesus Christ. And the first expression of that repentance, which has transformed our lives, is an expression of worship. As we proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us. We do this obviously in worship services, but also in all of life. And what we have seen is that that true worship of God to which we are called, that, that true worship of God which repentance brings us into necessarily overflows in a life of new obedience rooted in humble dependence upon the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. And so repentance leads us to worship, and worship leads us to new obedience. And this morning, I want us to further consider the, the character of that new obedience. What does this new obedience actually look like? What does it consist of? And this morning we will see that the new obedience to which we are called, that, that new obedience which is to characterize our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, is a new obedience marked by self-denial and neighbor love. So let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You now to submit ourselves to Your Word read and preached. We ask that You would remember Your promise 
that your word would not return to you void, but, Father, that it would bring forth the harvest of righteousness in our lives. Be with me as I speak. May I be bold and clear. And be with each of us, Father, giving us hearts to understand, ears to hear, minds to grasp these truths that we might bring forth their fruit in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. This is the very Word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the reading of God's Word. If you've ever heard his radio show or if you've ever taken his financial peace class, you know that Dave Ramsey is famous for telling people to avoid debt. If you want to buy something, no matter what it is, save up and pay cash. I think it is financially wise advice. However, it's important to understand that that is not Paul's concern here in this verse when he says, owe no one anything. Paul is not saying that Christians should always pay cash and never incur debts of any kind, but rather he is saying that Christians should pay the debts that they do incur, the debts that they cannot avoid. This is clear from what he wrote in verse 7. Just glance back up to the end of the previous paragraph. He says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It seems that some of the early Christians believed that their new allegiance to King Jesus meant that they no longer had to honor or pay taxes to the governing authorities of Rome. Caesar was no longer their lord, therefore they were free from those sorts of obligations. Paul corrects this misunderstanding by pointing out that the governing authorities serve the same God that these Christians serve. They, these authorities serve at God's pleasure. And therefore, when they exercise authority, they exercise the authority of God. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 13. Paul writes, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God as appointed. In other words, Christians, as servants of King Jesus, have an obligation to honor the Roman authorities and to pay to them the revenues and the taxes that they demand because the Roman authorities are themselves, whether they recognize it or not, servants of King Jesus. Taxes and revenue and honor and respect, these are the Christians' rightful debts. And as such, they are to be 
pain. This is what Paul means when he says, owe to no one anything. He's saying, pay what you owe. Fulfill your obligations, even to the Roman authorities. <coughs> However, notice what Paul says next. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. What does he mean? Why does he add that little phrase, except to love each other? It seems that he is saying that there is one debt that the Christians will never be able to pay in full. There is one debt that they will never be able to fully discharge. There is a debt that they will simply always owe. And that is the debt of love. Christians have certain debts. They, they have a moral obligation to obey the authorities. That is a debt that they can pay. But there is one debt that they will never fully discharge. And it is that debt that I want us to think about this morning. What is this debt of love that Paul is talking about? Well, first, let's be clear what Paul isn't saying. Paul isn't saying that we must do good works, that we must do the good works of love in order to pay off the debt of our salvation. Paul does not think of our salvation as a, as a beautiful home or as a, a nice new car that we've bought on credit and now must pay off. He is not suggesting that, that love is the, the mortgage payment, so to speak, for our salvation. Such thinking, as we have sung and heard this morning, is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed so clearly by Paul throughout all of his letters, it says clearly that we are saved by grace through faith, apart from works of the law. We are not saved by our own works. We are not saved by what we have done. We are saved by what another has done for us in our stead. He was delivered up for our sins. He was raised again for our justification. And as we receive Him by faith, we receive a full salvation. To suggest that we pay God back for our salvation is just as antithetical to the gospel as to suggest that we had to pay for it up front in the first place. However, while we are not under obligation to pay God back for our salvation, our salvation does bring us into a new relationship with the King. And that new relationship with the King entails certain obligations. So while we are not under obligation to pay God back for our salvation, our salvation does come with certain obligations. To be a Christian is to be a servant of King Jesus. And being a servant of the King means having an obligation to serve. So it is not that our debt is, is necessarily contrary to the gospel. It's just that we must get our debt in the right place. We see this, for example, in a passage like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Turn there with me. 
to Ephesians chapter 2. Eight, nine, and ten. I can hear my dad's voice in my head every time I turn to Ephesians chapter two, telling me that if you're going to quote Ephesians two, eight, and nine, you better include verse ten, because you don't get the whole picture if you stop at the end of verses eight and nine. Eight and nine are, are familiar verses. Look what Paul writes. He says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith." There it is. We've been saved by grace. Through faith. And in case there was any doubt, he adds, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have been saved by grace. Through faith. And even this faith is the gift of God. It is not your own doing. God has saved you through Jesus Christ. Through the works of another. But now notice what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So how does this salvation work? We are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works. We do not work for our salvation. God's grace saves us. It brings us into a new relationship. It reconciles us to the King. But having been reconciled to the king, we are now under obligation to the king to live as his servants, to do the good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. You see the same thing in, in Titus chapter 2. This is actually the text that Sam preached on at the retreat last Sunday. And notice what we are told. It's an amazing text. Titus chapter 2, page 998 in the Bible. In the few Bibles. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. He writes, For the grace of God has appeared. That's it's the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The grace of God has appeared in Christ Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. And what does this salvation do? What does this grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice, why does God's grace do this? Why does God's grace save us and, and train us to live new lives of, of new obedience? It does this because this was exactly Christ's purpose. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. <clears throat> Jesus saved us, not because we had done good works, not because we were zealous for good works, but he saved us so that we might become a people zealous for good works. That we might become a people who find our delight in serving our new King. And so no, good works are not the mortgage payment that we give to God in exchange for the salvation that He has given us, but rather they are, in, are the expression of our full participation in the salvation which has been freely purchased for us, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. So good works have a place. We, we have an obligation to do these good works. 
And so what is the nature of the good works that we have been saved to do? What is the, the nature of the good works that we are to be zealous for? Well, as we answer that question, we, we have to recognize that good works are not defined by our own motives or intentions. It's, it's not what we intend for good. Or it's not what we uh, do with a good, uh, a good heart. But rather, the good works that we have been called to do are defined by God Himself. Our confession says it this way, Good works are only such as God has ordained in His holy word, and not such as without warrant thereof that are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon pretense of any good intention. I know that's a little bit archaic language, but let me short, shorten it for you. Basically, they're saying it's not the thought that counts. Just because you think something is good, or, or just because you intend something for good, doesn't make it good. These are not the good works that we have been called to, but rather, God, good is defined by God. It is God who tells us what is good. It is God who tells us what, what counts as a good work. And therefore... We do good. We do the good that we have been created to do. We do the good that we have been redeemed to do as we submit ourselves to His good, perfect, and pleasing will. You see this, for example, in a passage like 1 Peter 1. That's one of the passages that I preached on last Sunday. And in 1 Peter 1, what are we told? We are, we are told that as obedient children, we are called to be holy what does it say? We are called to be holy as He is holy. His holiness is the standard for our holiness. Our holiness is to be like His holiness. We don't define the standard, but rather we see the standard. We receive the standard in God's own character. And so, it's not the thought that counts. It's not that our motives don't matter. Of course they do. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says we can do all sorts of good works. We can give money to the poor. We can even surrender our body to the flames in sacrificial service of our neighbor. But if we do it without love, it is nothing. Good motives are necessary. We are to do what we do out of love for God and out of love for neighbor. But while good motives are necessary, they are not sufficient. In order to be good, in order to count as good works, we must both be motivated by worship, by that desire to, to magnify the glory of God's name, and we must be in submission to God's Word. We, we must be acting in obedience to His law. This is one of those points that we need to hear in our culture today. We, we have a sense in our culture today that if, as long as we intend it for good, as long as we have a good intention, as long as it makes us feel nice, then it's good. Scripture speaks to the contrary. Scripture says, no, a good work is a work which is done from a good motive, from a desire to, to worship and, and glorify our King, but from a desire that is ruled by God's Word. A desire that is in submission to God's law. 
And so we find here in the gospel itself a place for God's law. <laughs> the law is the blueprint for our life even under the freedom of the gospel. It no longer rules us. It no longer says do this or die. But it still guides us as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we are compelled to ask, what does this law require? And of course, we have a summary of it here in Romans chapter 13. What does Paul say? Turn back to me to our passage, Romans chapter 13. <coughs> Here in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, the very end of verse 8, what, is, what does Paul say? He says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What does the law require of us? Of course, there are many commands. Paul lists several of them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not have sex with someone who is not your, your spouse. In our culture today... That seems contrary to love. Let love express itself as long as you're in love. Paul says no. You don't love your neighbor by, by introducing sex into a relationship that has not been bound together by a covenant vow of matrimony. Our culture doesn't know what love is. And so therefore, our culture does things that is antithetical to love, even in the, the name of love. And Paul says, no, to love your neighbor well, do not commit adultery. To love your neighbor well, do not murder. To love your neighbor well, do not steal. To love your neighbor well, do not even covet that which belongs to your neighbor. This is what the law requires. The law shows us what it looks like to, to love our neighbor. The, the law is fulfilled when we love our neighbors well. So let's put the pieces together. What have we seen? We've, we've seen that we were saved for good works. Not by good works, but for good works. We've seen that those good works are defined by the law, so that the law of which, from which we have been set free still has a role to play in our lives. And we've seen that that law calls us to love our neighbor well. And this is the reason that Paul can speak of the obligation to love as the debt that the Christian will never pay off. This is the obligation that you live under now. This is the obligation that is inherent in your salvation. This is the obligation which will have no end. Just as God is a God of love, both now and forevermore, we are called to be a people of love, both now and forevermore. We will never come to the end of our obligation to love our neighbor well. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but rather because such love, such a, a life of love is actually the very goal of our salvation. Think again of Titus 2. It was for this purpose that he saved us. 
that we might be zealous for good works, good works defined by the law, a law which calls us to love our neighbor well. When you begin to see this, when you begin to see that we have been called to this life of love, you, you begin to understand more clearly why Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, the, the verses that we were looking at in Sunday school this morning, you begin to see more clearly why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, you cannot, at the same time, put your own interests first and seek the interests of your neighbor before all else. You must either deny yourself or you must deny your neighbor. You must serve one or the other. And Jesus says as clearly as he can say it, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and serve your neighbor. It's not calling for self-denial as an end in itself. It's not that when we say no to ourselves, somehow that earns us brownie points with God, but rather we deny ourselves so that we might be free to serve the good of our neighbor. We, we deny ourselves so that we might be unencumbered to use the resources that God has placed at our disposal to bring a blessing to others. And so let's think for a moment what this means for us as followers of Christ. As I said, as, as disciples, we, we began with a response of repentance and, and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we turned from our sin to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, celebrating, worshiping God for the things that He had done for us, for the way that He had called us out of darkness into light. And that worship, that delight in what God had done led us into new obedience. New obedience defined by God's law, a law which shows us the blueprint for loving our neighbor well. And so a life becoming a follower of Christ is a life of self-denial and neighbor love. A life of, of love motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Motivated by worship and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Sin always entices us to put our own interests first. It, it always entices us to, to satisfy our own appetites, to, to, to meet our own needs first. This is the way that the, that the flesh works. It, it looks different in each of us. For some, the, the goal is, is always our own comfort or pleasure. We will serve that in at all costs. Others are more interested in power and control, and that is the goal that they will pursue. Still others are interested in prestige and the, the praise of, of men. Our idols are different, and we serve them in different ways, but our flesh always demands that we serve ourselves first. This is why both the prodigal and the Pharisee can be lost. The prodigal serves his own pleasure and his, his comfort. The, the Pharisee serves his own prestige. And yet ultimately they are both serving themselves. So sin doesn't always look the same in our lives, but it always serves the same selfish 
is. But the gospel sets us free. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free to put the interest of others before our own. It sets us free to, to please our neighbor even before ourselves, even at the cost of pleasing ourselves. It sets us free to, to generously sacrifice in order to meet the needs of another. How, how does it do this? How does it, how does it set us free from the entanglements of sin? How does it set us free from the, the cords of selfishness? First, by drawing our gaze to a higher good. Think of what Jesus said. He says, listen, if you will lose your life, you will save it. He's, he's promising life. Think of the, the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. The man didn't go away rejoicing because he had found a mud puddle. He didn't give away his life. He didn't sacrifice everything for that which was nothing. He went away joyfully, sacrificing everything because he knew he had found something far greater than anything he could possibly give away. He had found treasure in a field. And Jesus is saying, listen, the life that you are longing for, the life that you were created for, it is found in me. If you will stop clinging to the life that your sin promises you, if you will give that away, if you will give that up, if you will say no to your sinful desires and passions, you will find in me a life beyond all comparison. So it draws our eyes to a higher good, and then it reminds us that this new good has been promised to us. It is promised to us in Christ. It says there is something better. You're, you're trying to satisfy yourself with, the, with the, the, the muddy water at the bottom of a broken cistern. When there is offered to you a fountain of living water. Yes, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. But it is a call to live. Because through death we find a new life, a resurrection life, that is beyond all comparison with whatever pleasures or treasures or prestige this world might be able to offer. So the challenge for us this morning is simply this. Do we believe Jesus when he says, if you will lose your life for my sake, you will find it. I know for many of us in this room, we, we believe this. We, we cling to this problem. And I also know that because you're like me, you struggle to live in this reality every day. That's what the grace of God is for. That's why we do this in humble dependence upon the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. For He is the one who will daily set us free to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow after Christ, knowing that if we lose our lives for His sake, we will save our lives. If we lose our lives, we will find true life indeed, a life abundant, a life beyond imagination, a life greater than whatever this world might think to offer. And because such a life is offered to us in Christ, that is one reason why we hear His call to come and die as good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank You for Your grace.
We thank you for the call to die because we hear it as a call to live. Father, I'd give us the faith to, to hear your call, to answer your call, to respond to your call, and to walk in a life worthy of this call. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.